Roger. Yeah, I think you're pulling the wrong one. I'm just... Okay, I'm ready to pull it down now. There was still a little bit uh, left in the... Okay, don't hold it quite so tight. Okay. Is that right? Is that right? Damn, I think it's going on the wrong one. Okay, I'm ready to pull it down now. Hi! Welcome to the podcast. This is how it's going to start. episode today right now we're listening to music from the late bruce hake from a newly released recently released album called the preservation tapes that highlights some of his uh unreleased songs and some special versions of old songs during the podcast i have a very cool guest let me just start by saying that If you haven't listened to Bruce's music yet, I highly encourage you to stop right now and listen to some of his music before listening to this podcast, because it will be so much better. This is a song right now called Untitled Number Two. But we're really going to get into it with my guest today, Chris Kachulis longtime friend and collaborator with Bruce Hake or Bruce Hack. I'm gonna say hack from now on just because just because it starts now here on live to tape. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. Thank you for rating and reviewing the podcast. Thanks to the weird guy who says he likes the podcast except for the effective voices. That was kind of funny and weird. (laughs) Wow. This is Bruce Hack. My music encompasses all forms, produced electronically on synthesizers, which I have built.
This is Johnny Pemberton calling you right now. Um, yes, call- uh, good oh, hey. afternoon. Good evening, Johnny. Hey, Chris. Good evening to you. How you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, we're here live in the studio. Uh, okay. Matt's here. Noah's here. All You're your friends. <laughs> I know. I'm seven minutes early. Oh, that's good. Is that okay with you? That's, that's a, a little extra time there. <laughs> Outstanding. Wonderful. So you are Chris Kachulis, is that correct? That's right. Uh, Christos Katsoulis, as oh, the Greeks say. As the Greeks say. So you're Greek. Uh, uh, Greek origin, I was born in Brooklyn. Oh, right. Not okay. far from where you were visiting in Williamsburg when you were in Brooklyn a few months back. Right. All, all good things go to Brooklyn eventually. 
and we'll come back from it anyway. Uh, it was a real uh, rundown um, neighborhood, but it was a nice middle class time uh, during the uh, Second World War and mm-hmm. after that. And uh, and then I moved to Queens with, you know, simple uh, studio. Great. So, Chris, we, uh, I'm trying to think here. So, we met um, because you called this uh, called Starburns because uh, you are have something to do with the composer and musician Bruce Hack, who I'm a, a big fan of, and you are his friend uh, and com- collaborator and uh, all these things like that. I guess can you just um, just start maybe start from the beginning? I guess sort of just a would-be Renaissance combination. I yes. guess you might say. How did you meet Bruce? Well, I um, I'm going to put this a little louder. Please, please forgive me. No problem. Okay, that seems okay. If it's good for okay. you, it's good for me. Oh, are we all right? Okay. Um, back in 1958, mm-hmm. when um, Ted, when I met Ted Pandell, uh, he was working at American Broadcasting Company, and so was I. I was there for about a year, and then I stayed there till 2000 and something, I don't recall. But um, I met Ted there because he was working in programming at American Broadcasting Company. He was logging in commercials and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I met him, and we struck up a, a conversation, and then the Greek background came in. And then he did his, his homework or research, and he found out that we were uh, distant cousins from families uh, way back in uh, Greece in um Daphne Sparta. So uh, this is you I met and him at ABC, and uh, I found out that he was a distant cousin because a lot of the names were linked, and people married their second cousins and third cousins in those small uh, areas. Uh, and this was in Sparta, but a small town in Sparta. And his family came from one right next to it, but there were so many people that were related, you know, legally. And uh, this also is Ted Pandell you're talking about, right? Right. Say it again. This is uh, you're talking about Ted. How you met Ted? Yes, uh, that's how I met Ted. Right. And Ted had been working with Bruce for about four years because Ted had come uh, from uh, from um, Juilliard, Pennsylvania, originally. Okay. Right, uh, in uh, McKeesport or East McKeesport, and Bruce came in from over uh, in another country in Canada. Yeah, he's from uh, uh, Nova Scotia. They met at the old Juilliard um, Music School before there was ever ever such a thing or maybe even a thought of Lincoln Center. So that was on Upper Broadway in the 70s or 80s, the the blocks, I mean. And that was back in 1954. They both enrolled, and they struck up a friendship that lasted until Bruce died in 1988. And Bruce was in at Juilliard. He was studying composition and uh, piano. Is that right? Well, he was studying a theory, and um, he he didn't like the restrictions. So he, um, you know, it was a little too confining for him, and he wanted to create things on his own. And since he was a kid in Canada, mm-hmm. uh, he was cre- he was uh, playing piano when he was about four years old. He was a prodigy, is that correct? And then when he was about eleven or twelve, he was giving piano lessons, so he and his family could earn some extra money. His father was some kind of. Um, a mathematical genius who was, um, you know, he was uh, in a, a, a situation where he, as a result of polio, he was, uh, you know, um, 
physically challenged, but he was a brilliant bookkeeper at the mine uh, where uh, in the area that they lived in in Canada. And the mother was a teacher, a school teacher. She taught, she taught music. And Bruce even remembers, he said, he told me this and he told other people too, I'm mm-hmm. sure, that when he was, before he was born, he would hear music when he was in his mother's womb because she played at country dances on Friday and Saturday nights oh, wow. to earn extra money, um, you know, the country dances and the, and he really loved it, Native Canadians, and he learned a lot of um, music and art and just the uh, original lifestyle of the Native Canadians, um, and they were really oppressed, even though yeah, it was this their is, country. This is in Alberta, and right? He, in Alberta, Canada? That's where Bruce was born, right? Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah, there's a, there's a really large Native population in Canada. Yeah. So he oh, was, yeah, he was close, and he learned, and he did a, a number of music pieces that was um, inspired and and um, a, a tribute to uh, the Na- Native Canadians. They they were so oppressed, and they were, and you know, especially when he was growing up right. in the very early forties, b- before the Second World War. Okay. See, he would have been about ten in nineteen forty one when the war started. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize that. I guess that makes sense because you can hear that sound in a lot of his music. You hear that sort of. Oh, you hear. Uh, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. His uh, a lot of his melodies and a lot of his um, themes. Even when he does um, uh, something like uh, "Wooden Bread." Oh it's, yeah, um, one of my favorite songs. Uh, uh, an old uh, uh, crone, if you will, or. Uh, uh, Witch, not a warlock, but a witch. He took the voice of the a witch and he gave the recipe of how to make wooden bread. Do you mind and if part I... of that has a, a touch? But he has something called Walking Eagle too. Okay. A, a piece called Walking Eagle, and then he has an ode to the uh, the original Canadians. Walking Eagle. Should we hear? Can we? I'm going to play a little bit Walking, of that real quick. Just to... Walking Eagle is a piece that may be yeah, on one of his kids' albums. Cycle. He did about 14 System. kids' albums on his Dimension Five right. label that he worked with uh, Esther Nelson on. Let's let's hear a little bit of Walking Eagle together. I can play it here on the computer, so we can both listen to it. I just want to hear that because I haven't heard this song oh, in a long time. This is off of that by, album. By Bruce Hack, right? Right. There may be other titles with. Uh, this is off of Captain Entropy, which I think is a kid's record oh, he did right. with... Oh, that's uh, one of his great uh, kid's albums. But they're not really kid's albums, he said. They're for people. Yeah, they're not really kids. No I matter guess. what age. They, they could be uh, just out of the womb or just uh, ready to say goodbye. Okay. Oh, that's a... That's a wow. <laughs> that's a really a deep thing to say. <laughs> Let's listen to this real quick. I'm going to take you on a trip in time. To a point when I was a boy living in the province of Alberta in Canada. Walking Eagle, great chief of the Stony, also known as Morley Beaver, would bring his braves and their families into town. And while they visited the stores and trading posts, the tiny papooses, dressed in beaded buckskin and snugly wrapped to boards, were placed in a row on the store shelves. The papooses never cried. Chief Walking Eagle would tell me stories life in the forest, 
and of how he learned to forecast weather from the animals. His forecasts were always accurate. One day, the great chief invited me to a sacred celebration called a Sundance, which was being held by another tribe. Now somebody in your circle take a puff from a peace pipe and pass it to a friend. Pass it all around. Hold hands and sway from side to side. If you feel it, act out the scene in body sign language. Chris? Now it's yes, that's a great memories from that. It's wonderful. I, I'm not going to play the whole thing right now just because it's such a... Uh, a great. St- I, I didn't realize. How, I don't know that song is so long. I didn't realize. I forgot what a what a story is contained in there. It's so interesting. Yeah. Oh, he 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 created and wrote those stories. He was inspired by everything. He loved the wonderful cave art of of the first people, mm-hmm. uh, and he he considered them uh, work of aliens. He he felt that that was a, and he really was crazy about two thousand and one a space odyssey. Mm-hmm. So we were talking about Bruce growing up in Canada, and yes. uh, that song. Unfortunately, being... he learned to smoke peyote there and drink a little too when he was just a preteen, even. Well, how come you say uh, unfortunately? Well, uh, you know the drinking. Oh, the drinking. You know, it, okay. It sort of uh, took yeah, the... control at certain times in his life, but I just heard uh, peyote. He was able to peyote. control. He had good will, but then when he got weak, it was difficult. Yeah. So he had because he. I remember reading somewhat uh, something about this about how. The later years, I guess I'm just going to skip forward a little bit because um, the thing I think about most when I think about Bruce Hack is the album uh, Bite, which I guess got reissued as the album Hackula, right? Oh, Bite, yeah. Right, and, and I know that was a pretty dark time for him. Is that is that right? You you guys a were very dark been... time. The, the cover art was done by a great artist uh, that worked at American Broadcasting. I knew him for many years, Gerald Andrea. It shows he he, he described what he thought would be a good cover, mm-hmm. and it was a schoolhouse, but it was uh, also a skull house because he he thought this greatest piece of cabinet making was the skull because it contained the brain and. That that way it has the students uh-huh. entering the mouth of the skull, and the skull has a mortarboard as a, you know, has a mortarboard hat on, and behind the skull, the students are flying to the heavens. They have, they've got wings. That's so it, interesting. It's a, a beautiful concept. That was his, his thought, and uh, Gerald, Gerald Andrea just uh, did a, a black and white etching of it, uh, pen and ink. So. But what about the uh, the per- there's all on that same cover is a, a body hanging from a string off the oh, mortarboard. Oh, yeah, that's the tassel. Yeah. In other words, he he was seeing that sometimes schools can create great depression in students uh-huh. and it could go the other way sometimes and they they get involved with with something that's too heavy for them to handle mm-hmm. at those tender ages of, uh, and he said that that would be the end they would um, you know he, he saw that as suicide but of uh-huh. course there's all the students that are flying to the heavens i mean they, they in other words they're soaring with the education i never knew they, that I've seen that cover so many times, I just didn't realize, because it looks so dark because of the skull and the fact that it's eating humans. I just didn't, oh, yeah, I didn't realize so, what was behind it. 
Well, that was Bruce. He was a real human mm-hmm. uh, and a humanist, too. He, he just loved uh, the idea of communicating, and uh, he predicted a lot of things about people will just be hearing music in the air, and that all came to be with uh, all the online stuff. And right. Music will be free. And when I said, but, you know, you, you want to do things, Bruce, that would cause people to... Uh, uh, we get you know bring, you bring them to your attention, and he says no. If anybody's interested in finding me, they'll find me. Mm-hmm. So you mean and like, he, in terms of he wasn't trying to be outrageous or anything. He was just doing what he wanted to do. I guess those were his serious thoughts. Uh-huh. He cared. He 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 loved uh, human beings. Mm-hmm. Period. He loved the idea of uh, the creation of humans and. And that wonderful message that is there in life. I have a question because about... Because he, he, loved, he loved nature life in Canada, too. Right. And he would say he'd see, you know, animals dying either naturally or whoever. But every time he went back, they kept dissolving into the earth. And that really impressed him, you know. He'd see them, and then they'd become part of the earth. Without even, not being buried, but just, just uh, being absorbed by the earth. Yeah, he's, he, he was it. he was such a spiritualist in that sense, where he really had like a he, a broad oh, he, universal he really view. Loved, he wasn't religious as as we know it, but he did have a a, a love for people's faith and the message of uh, Jesus too. So can we t- can we talk about that? Because obviously, some of that his religious upbringing, like the Christian stuff, came from when he was growing up, right? Yeah. Well, he was interested in um, when somebody. He he saw uh, ch- uh, churches, denominations, or whatever religious groups. He saw them as platforms or theater-like locations. But he loved the idea of being in churches and listening to the music, and uh, inhaling the incense, and then seeing the beautiful artwork on the stained glass windows and whatever artwork was would happen to be in the particular church. Mm-hmm. So he saw that as a. A, a kind of, the, he loved the theater of religion, but he really believed the Bible was a wonderful message, mm-hmm. especially uh, the uh, fulfillment of the Old Testament and into the New Testament. Because uh, he loved that story of um, good versus bad, and right. His big his album that's the most notable album is the one from uh, called Electric Lucifer. Which oh, is, the Columbia release, right. yes, back in 1970. He did. He actually finished that. Uh, we were taking trips to New Jersey because he wanted to go to the ocean towns uh, in, of the Atlantic Ocean and uh, see the different towns, and he loved to stop and eat at the different um, little um, restaurants that were on the waterfront. What did you like so to we, eat? We, say it again? What did you guys eat at those places? Uh, of... of Fish and chips and, fish, and uh, chips. Different, uh, fish foods and um, uh, uh, he loved clam chowder. Okay, that's a cool detail. <laughs> yeah, he, he loved that uh, New England kind of thing. Yeah. Um, let's see. Um, so you guys I'm, were I'm getting. Gonna, um, I guess I'm mixing I should, everything up there's about. Well, there's so much to talk about. I, I guess I'm just really curious about. Maybe we should just keep talking about Electric Lucifer because that I think is such yeah. an important thing. And I think it defined his career, at least in me, my, my mind. It was the first, it wasn't the first thing I heard of his, but it was the first thing where I was really thought, I have never heard anything like this before. 
People talk about Kraftwerk being the uh, the parents of electronica and electronic yeah. music, but uh, Lucifer dates them by about ten years. And what is it? Is it sixty nine or seventy one? Yeah. I can't. Remember. Uh, he actually finished it in around sixty eight. Wow. Uh, Early 69, uh, through 68, 69, he was creating it. Mm -hmm. Then I brought it to Columbia, and John Hammond, who was a great entrepreneur and a, right. a head of the uh, artisan repertoire department then, back in the late 60s, they took an interest in it because they had been working with uh, then known as uh, Wendy Carlos, right. uh, now Wendy, and, and then um, also um, Terry Riley. Oh, and yeah. They wanted to start, um, uh, you know, a kind of a library of that kind of um, music. Uh -huh. And they saw in Bruce uh, a real in innovator in the fact that he invented his instruments and he did all the tracks himself, or wrote the, composed the music, or, or wrote the lyrics to everything. Lucifer has 13 uh, cuts, I think, on the album. Right. But he did actually about 21. But then he said he's, he was editing it, and he said, I want to cut it down to the number 13. He said he wanted it to be 13 cuts. Why is that? I don't know. He had a, a thing. Of, well, he wasn't a numerologist, mm -hmm. but he, he saw the art in numbers. And for some reason, 13 seemed to work. But I always thought like 13 seemed to be like a... Um, unbeneficial sign or something like that, but he didn't believe in that kind of thing, but uh, he he just wanted it to be 13, and maybe he just didn't, He maybe he thought the others were too much to add for one album, yeah. and he was going to use them in uh, what he called Book 2, which he did in 1969. Okay, because that's, one of, my, that's it, one of my favorite ones, is Book 2. I really like that album a lot. Oh, no, you're talking about is not really book two. It's not? Okay. That's, that's book three. Oh. Book, book two was never released. But Philip Anagnos, who did a documentary about Bruce's life and work... The King of Techno, that one? Say it again? It's called The King of... Bruce Hack, King of Techno, right? Oh, yeah, that's the documentary yeah, right, great by, documentary. by Philip Anagnos. Mm -hmm. That opened at the... Um, at the um, What's the, not, not the uh, same place as Sundance, yeah. but it's called something else about dance. Um, Slam um, dance? Slam dance yeah. festival, right. Back in 2005, I yeah. think, or four. And, and they liked it, and it got good attention. It always got good reviews, but he took it out of circulation after that company in Port Washington, New York, uh, released it. And then they were sold to um, an English uh, company, which mm. became... Um, um, a punk uh, record uh, label, and no. I can't remember, can't remember the names. Well, talk about book two then. Where is the real book two? Can that be heard? Book two is uh, is the track is on a video. I think the original tracks may be in Canada uh, at the archives, but. Um, Book two was uh, he had me what he what he did in book two after he got the good news mm -hmm. he was very happy when Columbia because he liked Columbia. Uh oh. He kind of liked Bob Dylan. Yeah. And uh, some of the, and he loved uh, Janis Joplin. Right. But uh, he he um and John Hammond was really uh, impressed with him. John Hammond had discovered uh, Billy Holiday and uh, Benny Goodman. He was yeah. actually Benny Goodman's brother-in-law, and. Um, 
Uh, he was the ha from the Hammond family, and he was a, a major force in the 30s at Columbia Records. He discovered people. So does, and, um, does anything and Bruce from, Springsteen was one of his right. last big discoveries. Does anything from um, uh, Book 2 appear on this new release, the preservation tapes? That's what, that's kind no, of... because... Because they, they I, I don't know what, I mean, it may be in the uh, collection, but it could be in uh, three different places. Ted could have it. Mm -hmm. I think he has a recording of it. He has a video of it, actually. Okay. Because what uh, Phil did was, uh, you know, after he did the documentary, he said, let's do the... Um, An album? Let's do the um, a, a, a video... Uh, it was about 42 minutes, and uh -huh. it was done in real time. And I did all the vocals when Bruce had... Bruce, Ted was away, so I worked with Bruce at his studio on 72nd Street from um, the the, uh, the day before Christmas Eve 1969 wow. into about a day or so after about 11 days, we worked on that album. Uh, day and night, sometimes we'd get drunk and sometimes we'd be sober. Do you guys do anything sober. else besides drinking? To help you? Say it again? Did you ever, do, did you guys uh, help, use anything else to help you during that time to help? Uh, he did, yeah. What was, uh, what I was, just, was a, a little marijuana. Right. And he would do peyote sometimes. So Bruce but, would be um, smoking peyote. It was for relaxing, he felt. Right, but okay. Still, um, so I just think peyote, in the yeah. long run, it, it, it could have caused more harm. But uh, any, he, um, so he created the, uh, I think there's 11 songs, and there were more, but he used 11. This time he wanted 11. And this was supposed to be the follow-up to Electric Lucifer. So these are 11 so, songs that no one's ever heard? So book two is actually book three. Okay. This was called um, Electric Lucifer Book Two. Uh-huh. IFO, Identified Flying Object, and it dealt with the return of Jesus, uh -huh. basically. So, and also, and then it had some of the things that appear on book, the, you know, the one you know as book two, uh, which is actually book three. That's, that he did in the 70s, maybe 74. So that's like that but song, Stand Up Lazarus, two. is that's from book two. The, the, real, the real book two, he did in 11 days, between he wanted it, he did it because he wanted to trans he, he liked the idea of going into another decade with it. Mm -hmm. So he started at the end of uh, 1969, and it ended uh, day after New Year's, uh, 1970. So what you're so saying it took is eleven days to finish it. Then he took a few uh, weeks on and off to edit it, and then um, you know he then then it, it just. Uh, he just let let it go. It was finished, though, mm -hmm. totally finished, ready to be presented. But he, um, and so he would ask me about if he, if I remember the lyrics, and I would sing them to him over the phone when he was already in uh, in Pennsylvania with Ted, uh, because he wanted to use some of the songs uh, for the um, his book, his uh, current book too. Mm -hmm. So this book so, too, you're talking about. It's not really available to listen to. A lot of those songs aren't aren't available. The one that was, uh, you know, what it's on. If you if you go to um, Phil, Philip and Agno's site, okay, um, uh, IFO uh -huh. or book book the original book two of Electric Lucifer is a video and the soundtrack. It wasn't a video when he did it because the video was done in two thousand and five. Got it. And okay. And I, I lip synced all the songs I had sung with Bruce's music and lyrics. Cool. I, I think I I think I just found something, and I'll I'll put a link to it for people to listen to you, it. You may see a vi 
pieces of the video that was created by uh, Philip and Agnos. We did it in real time, and it took about 45 minutes. I'm going to play this song right now. Do you want to listen? Should we listen to IFO real quick? Okay. Let's listen to this, see what it sounds like. Is there a video with it? There is not. It's a remix. Well. It was, no, I, I could sing it for you. Um, yeah, maybe maybe that'll be great to hear it. I, I'll I'll find um, it somehow. But I think that was some sort of a remix, actually. So it might be. Yeah, hard. Maybe that's right. It could be from mm-hmm. that other group from San Francisco that wanted to do the book too. They had a copy of the original. Wow! And really? They, wanted, they they had a copy of the uh, a copy the of group the sound capsule too, and they re-recorded it with the band. And that must I be can't it. remember what the name of the band was. Is it Sound Capsule? That's right. Yeah, that's who I was playing just now. It was Sound Capsule. Yeah, that's Bruce it. In well, San Francisco. Yanez is the last name of the person. I think Dylan Yanez. Okay. D-Y-L-A-N-Y-A-N-E-Z. Uh, and he may have a, um, a copy of the original book, too. Got it. Um, the, uh, the IFO was changed. It was two versions that Bruce did. One was... Is Jesus coming on a salsa, or will he be coming out of the sea? Jesus could be calling from, I'm doing it faster than it was. Jesus could be calling from away inside. You know, Jesus, he can set us free. Just before his miracle awakens, we might see a flash of ruby light. Some might play guitar and some a computer, and some will try to jump out of sight. Ooh, let's get together for to make him welcome. Let's try to pass his word around somehow. Listen to a signal that's a pulsing beep, beep. Because Jesus going to come and how? Oh, Jesus going to come and how? Yeah, Jesus going to come and how? He'll steer the ship. He's going to steer it well. Let nothing block the view. Watch the star that meets the storm and guides the captain through. Oh, Jesus isn't coming on the salsa. Oh, Jesus isn't coming from the sea. But Jesus could be coming from away inside you. You know, Jesus, he can set us free. Just before his miracle that builds up, you might see a flash of ruby light. Some might play guitar and some computer, and some will try to jump aside. Let's get together for to make him welcome. Try to pass his word around somehow. Listen to his signal that's a pulsing. Beep, beep, beep. 
Cause Jesus gonna come and how Oh, Jesus gonna come and how Oh, then it ends with a, a kind of a Greek Orthodox Byzantine saying wow. Jesus come, 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 Jesus Kaboom. That's incredible. Thanks for singing that, that Chris. That was IFO. That's Bruce's words and music. That really sounds like a spiritual, like a just a, a classic yeah, uh, well, gospel that, that spiritual. The voice. What he did electronically with it, uh, it gives it another uh, a coat of paint. Oh, I can't imagine. I, yeah, I have to hear this now. Well, I'll find a way to... to... It's stuff he did in 69, mm-hmm. uh, the end of uh, the uh, last week in 69, and then within the first week of 70. He wanted that transition. Uh-huh, okay. Yeah, it's interesting. Because he always had a feeling that maybe he wouldn't make it to another decade. He thought that? But he got to 88. He was, yeah. was he 52 then, I guess. So, well, so, um, I guess I'm going to... So that... Go ahead. Yeah, that has stand-up Lazarus on it, too. Right. Well, that's one of my favorite... Maybe I'll play that real quick right now. That's one of my yeah. absolute favorite songs. This is uh, Stand-Up Lazarus. Oh, there's beautiful songs on book, the uh, current book, too. Yeah. But we'll call it that, the current. Not, not that it's current, but it's the 1974 book, too. Um, Ted loves just the song at Twilight. Me, too. Oh, that's beautiful. I love that. that that's so poetic. Through the eyes, he made them see, he made the body whole. Now some who saw, some who heard, couldn't let it pass. They didn't want the man to walk and trample on the grass. Here comes the chorus. Oh, that's Trying to get it on, stand up, Lazarus. Or once again, you're gone. La, 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 la. That song is so incredible. That's one of my. That's an absolute yeah. favorite songs. The, the original melody he mm-hmm. did for it. He got it all together. He started with each soul. He clears the eyes. He helps us see. He makes the body whole. Mm-hmm. Now some who came or some who heard wouldn't let it pass. They didn't want the man to walk and trample on the grass. <clears throat> trample on the grass. <clears throat> Stand up, Lazarus. Time to get it on. Stand up, Lazarus. Once again, you're gone. Once again, you're gone. The smell of death was in the air. The hope of life was gone. You should have seen the way they looked when Lazarus walked on. Lazarus walked on. Oh, stand up, Lazarus. Time to get it on. Stand up, Lazarus. Once again, you're gone. Once again, you're gone. If Jesus showed us who we are and he has set us free, let's stand up to be counted. Let everybody see. 
Let everybody see you stand up, Lazarus. Trying to get it on the little stand up, Lazarus. Time to get it on. Time to get it on. Once again, you're gone. Once again, you're gone. Once again, you're gone. So is that a was that a slightly so he, different he, version he, he, you're doing? He always, always do two or more versions of okay. his songs. So uh, something I wanted to ask you about is yeah. uh, I always feel like there's sort of the all, th- all throughout Bruce's music there's sort of this thread of uh, I'm trying to think how to say it like anti uh, not anti-establishment so much but but um, like anti anti-establishment, uh, anti-establishment <laughs> but also uh, like anti going against sort of Controls from like off um, authoritarian control, the, right? The, the crowd or the uh, the general opinion, right? Uh, yeah, anti-military, anti-war. That was uh-huh. part of the uh, original Electric Lucifer thing right. because he did that in like 1967, 68 was his beginning of his creating uh-huh. of it, and then he finished it in. Uh, well, actually, he finished it in the end of 68, early 69. I brought it to Columbia, and they they saw it as an anti-war. I mean, so um, did they not like that, or was that something they were happy about? Because they oh, wanted no, they, they liked the idea okay. because that was their thing right. I mean, with the people they had. Uh, you know, the anti-war thing at the end of a war, a child voice says, "I don't want to play anymore." Right. That child is now a retired police detective. Wow. <laughs> Who was that child? Was that someone that that was from the Desikisian family? Okay. Um, uh, Armenian and Japanese uh, couple that had uh, two or three children, and uh, the youngest was Gary. They just lived in the neighborhood. Yeah, well, um, in in Queens, mm-hmm. and uh, the family was there, and the little girl was my niece's uh, best friend. She still is. I mean, they they grew up together. Okay. And the little child who was very expressive, Bruce recorded him in their family home, mm-hmm. and he just says. Gary, can you say, I don't want to play anymore? He said, I don't want to play anymore. He was about four. He did a great job. Yeah, he was. I love putting children on his works, his his great reign of earth and things like that. Yeah, he has a lot of records. Pro-children, pro-living beings and creatures and animals and plants, everything. Right. So I guess that's the other thing I think about a lot is you can hear so much positivity in those records and all all the ones that he did to, uh, with children and for children like Listen, Compute, Rock Home and all the ones with all the Dimension 5 records with, with Elster Nelson are so they're so uh, friendly and warm and they're so great yeah, for those. everyone to listen to but then you hear when you listen to Snow Job on, or I guess it's called Blow Job now, right? Or what's yeah, the word? right? That, that was that was the original, but then he adapted. Mm-hmm. Uh, he adapted the Hacula to um, a, an instruction. There was a book of instructions on how kids can make it their own electronic instrument. But wasn't that original? Didn't they not want to release it because it was so dark, like the, uh, the original oh, yeah, version of it? Um, I'm trying to f- remember what year that was. I brought it to Warner Brothers, and they just said, no, we can't use that language. Because it was very dark. <laughs> and it really wasn't terrible language when you think of it. Because there's that there's it, a song called Lie Back, and uh, I think the lyrics sound like, 
Um, the lies I've had to listen to nearly made me quit. The more I grew, the more I knew the world was full of shit. And I have tried to keep alive the learning of my youth. To stand aside and let a lie eliminate the truth. Lie back. Lie back. He's telling people to either you take it whatever way you want, mm-hmm. either to tell a lie back or just relax. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because it, there's that one line that says something about and history gave you a blow. You put your courage in a tree, and history gave you a blowjob. Is that what it says? Welcome to second best, my friend. Yeah. The living part of life is just a blowjob. You left your courage in a tree, and history gave you a blowjob. What do you think that means? Because I always thought about that as sort of basically saying that y'all, just if you. Like it's not the real thing, almost. But it's, uh-huh. but for many people, it's the real thing. But it, it's to me, it's that's a very dark lyric because he's basically, I don't know. It sounds to me well, that he's really fed up with with sort of mediocrity and people who are pretending to care about things, not actually caring he, about them. That, that's what it sounds like. Johnny, he would tell you that's exactly what he was doing. Okay, because he seems, would say that. Okay. And that's what he's saying to to us on on his recording. The the um, thing is, it's a a very bitter work, but it's musically and lyrically uh, beautifully written. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's so, what I love about so it. So what do, what do we throw out then? <laughs> I, I mean, that's it's a, it, he created that puzzle for us. Yeah. It's hard. So it's hard to listen to because of the, how heavy it is. He wanted to say it, and he just said it in music, in lyrics, and in um, technology with his uh, recordings. Because it seems like that Bruce. Because this was that was in 1981, right? When he put that out, or 1980, something close to there. Say that again now. With Hacula, or what was originally called Bite, that was something he released in the 80s. Is that early 80s, like 81 or 80? I'd say 81 sounds okay. right. Okay. And so that was, it was, he's put There a, are chronologies of his recordings, and they give you the exact uh, right. year. Well, so I, I'm, looking at, I'm looking at it on, the, uh, on, the, on a website, so it's telling me that stuff. So, see, Byte was created, but I think when I put it in one of us, the late 70s. Okay. Yes, but it wasn't. Didn't come out until eighty one. Not right. Uh, Hacula. Hacula. Because they had a special section they were developing along with the uh, the disco uh, recordings, mm-hmm. and they wanted a little um, a, a little harsher kind of uh, product. Right. So I took it to that area, but it, it really was too much for them too. Yeah. So that record, though, like that that's a that wasn't a time. Bruce passed away in what eighty eight? Is that right? He died in eighty eight, right? So this that was one of the last records that he did, right? Was uh, was Bite? Um, no, it, it it was a number of things. He did a whole series. Mm-hmm. He didn't put his name on it. He put Ted's name on it because he did. He was working with Esther on right. a seri- series of um, recordings. Um, called the funny song book, the fun to sing song okay. book, the uh, silly song book. He did about um, five or six of those, and they were for uh, audio cassette only. Oh, wow. Which was booklets that Esther Nelson was putting together. But okay. he did all the tracks, and they took all children's songs and nursery rhymes and stuff like that. And he, he would have me sing. He said, uh, do this in... Um, 
Bella Lugosi voice. So oh, do cool. a Catherine Hepburn <laughs> voice. Little Bo Peep. Little Bo Peep has lost her sheep and doesn't know where to find them. Oh, you know, right. She would have I've heard that. Stuff like that. I'm pretty sure I've heard that one. But he did great, beautiful, clever, funny uh, tracks to them. I guess what I'm trying to get at here is uh, I'm just interested in the sort of the the last few years of Bruce's life, what that was like, and what where his head was in terms of musically yeah. and just spiritually. He was fairly comfortable up until that time because, you know, Ted was a person who helped Bruce with Bruce's life mm-hmm. and his life's work. I don't think Bruce would have made it to 52 if it weren't for Ted. So what was Bruce suffering with at that time? Well, I think there was um, diabetes. Okay. Um, The alcoholism didn't help it. So, because that's a lot of times what happens, people who, who are alcoholics develop diabetes, is that right? Yeah, that that happens a lot, but there's so many other things. Yeah, so, um, so and the heart too. The heart. So so he was yeah. he was drinking pretty heavily for a while, and that was think think what yes. contributed to his uh, his death. That was uh, Bruce tried to to get him a little better alcohol because the ones Bruce would get, he would buy the cheapest brand he could find yeah. because it was like a rot gut, and uh, for some reason, I guess he was used to that from his youth. Right. So you think it was something with Bruce. That he like it was. I'm trying to think how to say this. It seems like some people like him. They they're such visionaries that they kind of end up all the light they bring and they end up seeing a lot of darkness and it kind of affects them in a way where they they have to sort of self medicate. Yeah, they, they, it's a, it, it happens to a lot of people. But when you yeah. think of somebody like the. Um, recent great uh, good good actor comedian who committed suicide i mean he had you know one would say from the outside uh, he had everything so far as great success and from early in his life too you know the um, great robin williams mork and mindy i, I yeah. always forget the name. Uh, robin williams is his name robin williams yeah i mean he's an example of a uh, Great successful people. Right. Bruce wasn't what you'd call um, a financially successful person, but he certainly was a creative, successful artist. Innovative. He, uh, innovator, inventor, yeah. composer, lyricist, poet. He has a, a book, a number of po- poems that he wrote uh, for Ted, mm-hmm. and it's a, a called the uh, the the New Wine Book of okay. Poetry. And, and that's then he by has Bruce. A, a garden of uh, earthly garden of delights because he loved Bruegel and uh, the yeah. idea of that that imagery. So that again, he loved to what? Create that musically. He loved what? It was a word with the B. He loved uh... the, the the famous uh, um, Flemish painter or Dutch uh, oh. Bruegel. Okay, got it. But he loved those illustrations and those mm-hmm. beautiful. Not illustrations, but those brilliant paintings with the various demons and uh, people and humanity. Uh, it's just a whole wave of thing. He that was one of his favorite. Yeah, he was really into like, that stuff. Really into the whole like heaven and hell mythology. Right. Yeah, that whole concept. So, do you think? And he had a very nice edition of Dante's Inferno wow. with the uh, Augusto uh, uh, um, etchings. Do you think that Bruce thought about that stuff in like a? concrete sense or more of as like a representation of things because obviously he thought well, about so many different well, he, he saw he, he loved the spirituality of it uh-huh. and because he saw the uh, the goodness in a, a figure 
are like Jesus Christ. He mm-hmm. saw that um, that was that that's like a total goodness, which was like unearthly. Right. It's a you know it's a, a kind of thing. Yet it it did touch the earth and uh, certainly touched the population. Mm-hmm. But and also similar things are like he liked uh, the Buddhists too. Yeah, because it seems like his philosophy is definitely a combination of those things. Yeah, all, all the, uh, the good, the good, the good spirits and the good messages of all those, just like from the Native uh, Canadians or the Native Americans, and um, mm-hmm. that kind of thing, and even the ancient things too. But he loved cave art, right? Can you talk? He he he, he created a so um um a solar system uh, on a ceiling that lit up um, in the dark. With what? He, was he it paint? That because when he slept, he looked up at that. And it's, uh, what did he create it with? Yeah, he was a good artist, too. Oh, I didn't know that. Like a visual artist. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the covers are his uh, drawings. But he he also would do the, He did, a, uh, if you know anybody who's interested in a, a beautiful libretto of music and lyrics, of he loved Charles Dickens. Okay, that's interesting. Because he loved Christmas. Oh, Bruce was really so, obsessed with Christmas. I didn't know that. Oh, he, yeah, he worshipped Christmas, and he, he, what he did was he celebrated Elizabethan Christmas. So it lasted into February. I didn't know that. Well, what he would, would he... have the Christmas decorations up until February, because he didn't want to take them out uh, after New Year's. That's so cool. Do you think That's it was... why he was happy creating Book 2 on that Christmas and New Year's week. Wow, so you think his whole thing with Christmas is just because the, the nature of Christmas is kind of... <clears throat> it's so... I mean, it should be, I guess. It's about loving people and, uh, like, the warmth oh, yeah. of it. That's right. He, mm-hmm. a, a brotherhood and love and peace and uh, all the, what people we turn sometimes into cliches is what he truly believed that mm-hmm. it was the, should be the end result of our... And then that that he would call a new beginning once it was the end result of our, our labors. Um See, he, um, the most, one of the most important figures in his life was Ted Pandel. Okay. What was... Whose real name is Praxiteles Pandeliotis. <laughs> Very Greek. I think the people over there at uh, Starburns would, would know from those kind of names. Uh, but um, he, Ted, literally saved Bruce's life. How so? I think Bruce probably may have lived to maybe half that age that he died at. He could have lived longer. But, you know, even Ted had so many responsibilities with his family and kids. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, he couldn't devote too much time to Bruce, but he had enough so that Bruce could live and thrive and survive and create. What did So, so what, what do you mean exactly? What did Ted do for Bruce that Bruce couldn't do for himself? Well, well Bruce lived at Ted's home with his wife and Ted's wife and children. I didn't know that. And, when was this? Yeah, he lived in the, and Bruce and Ted created a studio for him down in the basement, which was a large uh, space, uh, living space and comfortable mm-hmm. and beautiful. All his library was there. His, uh, he was inventing new machines. See, Bruce migrated back to, not back to, but from, you know, from Canada to New York. And in 1971, he went to, um, to Westchester, Pennsylvania, where Ted was uh, the professor and the head of the keyboard department at Westchester University in Westchester, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. where Ted uh, 
establish his home and family. And he said he he thought Bruce wouldn't survive in New York, and Bruce kind of knew it too. So he was just there a few months. I was with him on and off, and I, there wasn't much. And there wasn't much from the time that Ted left. New York to live in Pennsylvania till the time Bruce realized being alone wasn't for him. Okay. So um, Ted told him to come to New York, and he went and got him, actually, and he brought him to uh, Westchester. Right. And Bruce lived there at least from 1971 to 88. So He may not have lived all those years if it wasn't. And, and Ted helped Bruce with his work and uh, his health insurance and mm-hmm. so that he could, you know, be able to have... Um, um, uh, uh, you know, um, have health insurance. Have uh, seek uh, a doctor. Decent a form of life, kind yeah. of living, um, a quality of life living instead of the struggle he would have had in New York. So you think the struggle would have been just because he had such an addictive personality and yeah, these, these demons gone, gone off the wagon and, without and having now. someone to sort of stay with him. Right. And, See, because Ted was always with him, and, and a lot of times I was, but mostly Ted, from 1954 and they just, um, and he was such a support because Ted is like a, an angel, like a, um, like a, a guardian angel mm-hmm. and a, a, a gentle soul, very creative, a brilliant concert pianist. And, and he did works with Bruce, too. He helped Bruce uh, right. with works, and Bruce created a couple of piano works. Mass for solo piano was one, and there's a couple of other. And Bruce created a, um, a symphony for Canada called Wind Song. Wow. Is the, that... the Canadians know of it, and they, they play from time to time. Oh, so it's available. Yeah, Ted could probably tell you more about that. Yeah, well, eventually I'll be talking to him as well. Yeah. Bruce Hackett's called Wind Songs, huh? Is that what it's called? Wind Song. You probably, you probably can hear a, a, a version of it. It's a symphony for, for Canada. It's an interesting title, Wind Song, because of the... See, he remembers the winters in Canada. Right. He loved Canada. Canada's pretty cool. I like it. Yeah, he, he really loved it. His his father, he lost his father at a young age. Mm-hmm. The mother was very... See, both his parents were very intelligent, so that may have been part of his uh, inheritance, too. Yeah, I think so. It seems like it, because he had definitely had a, a genius streak from a very young, That which led him to... Because he I invented mean, to a bunch out, of... To pick out melodies when he's four years mm-hmm. old, because his mother had a talent for music. I, I think I mentioned she played for country dances on the weekend and right. money. He even made some money when he was about 10 or 11 for a few years by teaching neighborhood children or school, teaching school piano. friends. Right. Uh, their families wanted him them to learn piano, and he was able to teach them when he was about 11 or 12. What about his electronic inventions? Which of the, which of the things that he invented that you think is the most oh. interesting? Oh, when he, when, when Electric Lucifer was released, mm-hmm. um, Raymond Scott got in touch with him. Okay, Raymond Scott, the composer and the... Uh, the, the composer, really. The and, uh, electrical the engineer. music department at 20th Century Fox, uh-huh. and then, of course, at Warner Brothers with Looney Tunes, 
he created, uh, he was into the electronic stuff way back in the 30s. Oh, yeah. It was more um, electronic type sounding music like, uh, uh, you know, he did... Um, you know, very uh, modern city type of work. Yeah, I'm, I'm a big fan of Raymond Scott. Mechanical kind of sounds. But when he and he did, he invented a, a, a thing in the 50s, I think, called the electronium. This and is then Bruce, he met and this Bruce, is... and he said he wanted Bruce to program it. I I went with Bruce a few times to Raymond Scott's lab. Uh-huh. Um, Raymond Scott was married uh, first to um, one woman, and then he married when he became the head of uh, NBC's Your Hit Parade on television. Mm-hmm. Then he married um, the uh, young singer that was in that show. Then they divorced, mm-hmm. and he married uh, a, um, a dance instructor. She was uh, with the Arthur Murray dance studio. She was very nice. Her name was Mitzi, and, and Bruce and I loved her. She was terrific. And she was a lot of fun, and he was very, very pleasant. And Bruce, I went with Bruce about four or five times, and Bruce went maybe a dozen or more times to Raymond Scott's studio. And I understand Raymond Scott had a contract with Motown Records, and Bruce Hack uh, programmed him a lot of original things that Bruce wrote, and uh, Raymond Scott recorded it. And I think it wound up uh, with Barry Gordy, because Barry Gordy was very interested in applying electronics okay. you know, back in um, the early 70s. Is there an example on, uh, of that? Motown Records. Can you and think one of the songs was a tribute that Bruce had done mm-hmm. for Scholastic uh, Records and Publishers, uh, called um, the Martin Luther King album. That was around 1970, I think. Right. And a beautiful song he wrote uh, was a tribute to Martha, Martin Luther King, but it was a melody. And he had he asked if I would write lyrics. And the me- I, I could I could give you the melody if you want, but I could only remember if I sing the lyrics with it. I think I just but found I it. Is this? If I didn't either. But Can I play it, it for you? Called, I think I found um, it. Is this it? This. That's it. Is there a promise land where people can understand? The words that you say are true. The work that you have to do. Build up a better place. You know what you have to face. A world in a crazy spin. Time to all begin. The words are just not enough to feed a world in pain. They need some stronger stuff. To help keep out the rain, check out your reasoning. Purpose might be your thing. No right, right now. Get on, light on, look, look into your love. Look into your love. Look into your love. Just check out your love. His melody was so beautiful. Wow. That one. So- it, it was terrific. It sounded, made it sound like an orchestra with just uh, the electronium and some of Bruce's inventions. That's amazing. So that that was uh, Bruce Hack working with uh, Raymond Scott, you said, or was that just was that just uh, Bruce? Say it again. I, I, so that that uh, Martin Luther King musical documentary he did for Scholastic, that was Bruce was hired by by uh, by Motown to do that by Barry Gordy. No, that no, it was for Scholastic, for Scholastic. Uh, Records. It came out as a a, a small a, a small forty five. Or an LP? Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. I don't know if it's... Th- I think it was a small 33. Cool. It wasn't a 45. Yeah. And it had a booklet with it. And, uh, somebody named Peck. His last name was Peck. Not Gregory, but a Peck. Okay. Uh, Ira Peck. That's wrote so the cool. story. 
and Scholastic published it, and they wanted a, a song and a, a book, and, and Bruce did the narration on the recording. That's amazing. And it was a Scholastic release. Really cool. And um, that was a melody he created on one of um, Raymond Scott. No, he didn't create it on Raymond Scott, but I think he used, he created it on his own instruments okay. at home, at his home studio. And, and the, uh, the recording... Uh, he he did that as a because he wanted a soulful kind of sound mm-hmm. for a Martin Luther King subject. What do you know about the uh, the instrument that he built called Farad, the motion controlled vocoder? Uh, well, that was one of the f- earliest vocoders that uh-huh. was created in the sixties, but then he kept um, improving it and. Um, so honing it. He uh, built so it. It. it, it uh, he just used it throughout his uh, recording career. So that's something that he built. He was an, an he engineer. Built his own vocoder. He built. His, he used to go to Canal Street mm-hmm. uh, in Manhattan because he loved all the electronic stores and all the parts places, and he really right. liked the plastic stores too because he loved both uh, concepts. And he'd buy parts and things that he would. Uh, put together. He, he created his own tape recorder. He uh, created his own uh, recording machines and instruments. And sometimes he'd do things with standard and traditional instruments. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, he would create uh, um, an, Afri- uh, an African-like keyboard out of uh, the ice cream pop sticks. What? <laughs> and then he'd wire it. Oh, wow. And he even used his own body noises for, for sounds and that, that he would bend mm-hmm. and um, either distort or enhance. So, you know, whether it be a belt or you know what, whatever, mm-hmm. <laughs> he would use that because he found that uh, there was something in the sound of it that wasn't like other sounds. Right. That, um, people, that, that, uh, maybe he felt the body manufactured the best sounds. That's interesting. Because he used to wire people. Yeah. On television. As you know, on a number of television shows, he wired uh, people and somebody like um, the, the, the Scandinavian pianist, the comedian, um, you, you know who I mean. I'm trying to remember his name. Uh, he was very funny. He was a comedian, but a pianist. Is it Victor uh, Borga? Victor, Victor Borga. Yeah. Victor Borga played a series of beautiful <laughs> chorus girls because they were all wired. So, you know, the connotation of a very, you know, funny and sexy. But they, they did emit, emit sounds. Your body, your fingers would be higher notes, and your hand would be a little lower, and your arm and your torso would be denser. Wow. So he, you know, that's what he called dense music. Mm-hmm. Interesting. You know, um, a play on dancing. That's but cool. He did. He created works uh, with the, the body was the instrument. Interesting. And yeah. Body he, and, I've seen some of that. And then he, because little... he'd wire, you, you put um, leads on your fingers, right. and um, he'd have it um, electrolyzed. So That's so speak. cool. Did Bruce ever have any relationships with anyone? He didn't. He never had any kids or anything, he, right? Two, two, um, two women. He was very close to. One was a successful opera singer. Mm-hmm. You may know her name. Uh, and the other one was another. They were both Greeks, too, because uh, he was introduced to them by Ted. Mm-hmm. So they knew. Uh, one was a woman, a wonderful opera singer. She may be in California now. Her name is... Um, oh, wait, Teresa Stratus is one. And the... Oh, oh I actually... It's okay. You don't have to. I can't remember. Um... 
So he just, but it was oh, something where... I probably will come to me during the conversation. I, I have so many things entering right. the brain now. Um, Teresa Stratus and... Um, oh, okay. Um, uh, along the line, uh, it'll probably come back to me if Got I don't think about it. Okay. Cool. Um, so Catherine Gora, not, oh. not Goris. It, it's another one. I, I can't think of her name. Was it something where um, you think that Bruce was just so involved in his... His work that he never, yeah. he didn't really have time it, it, it for anything else. He was kind of romantically else. involved, but for some reason, I, no marriage. Yeah, it just was, he Maybe had, because he saw, he saw the unhappiness in his uh, mothers and fathers. Uh, the, the mother was kind of very strong and uh, difficult sometimes. Okay. He was always estranged from her because the father died young and uh, uh, he didn't, believe that the mother helped um, him have a little bit longer life. He worked very hard. He was, uh, he was, uh, his body was challenged by the uh, results of polio. And, you right. know, I, I told Bruce once, he said, I said, you know, the Salier is showing the Hunchback of Notre Dame was somebody that Bruce knew because, uh, this, you know, this great actor, he, um, he went to Canada once because he had friends at the university mm -hmm. uh, that he was friendly with, and he w was very close to them. And they introduced him to Bruce. You know, Charles Lawton is who I'm talking about. Okay. So, you, you know Charles Lawton. I know the name. I feel like I know. I'm, I don't... Oh, he, he was the hunchback of Notre Dame. Oh, got it. And, okay, um, yeah. Okay. Um, oh, he was married to Elsa Lanchester. He's in um, Witness of the Prosecution. Yeah, the actor. Um, okay. The great actor, you know, um, Captain Bly in the 1936 uh, Mutiny on the Bounty. It's a little bit outside of my scope of reference, but I know who you're talking oh, okay. about. It, yeah. It's a great, uh, great 30s okay. English stage actor. Well, uh, he saw one of the productions that Bruce did at the university in Canada, mm -hmm. and uh, the, the um, professors introduced him to Bruce, who created the production, the music, the songs, and the uh, he directed in... Um, did the production, and he says, you either better get, he said, you either better get to New York, right, or if you have to, Hollywood, or kill yourself. He said, because <laughs> it's the only place you can try to make something, and Bruce always remembered that. That's interesting. Well, it's good that he said that to and him. And shortly after that, Bruce went to New York. That's great. That's where good. he met Ted, who was a real uh, lifesaver to him eventually. And he met you. Which is obviously just yeah, as important. Uh, he met me through Ted mm -hmm. because uh, uh, did I say that Ted um, uh, told me we were related? Yeah, you did tell me he that. That's how we up. started off. That's the yeah. first. That's the first thing we said. And I met Ted at ABC where we both were. Right. And then Ted went to. Uh, then later Ted went to teach mm -hmm. at a Greek Orthodox church music school in Astoria, Queens, at St. Demetrius. And he was the, the head uh, music director there. But he wanted to uh, do more classical, so he went. He eventually got his professorship at um, Westchester University. That way he was able to make enough so that he could help support Bruce right. in between so-called engagements. Did, did, did you know, Johnny, that when in, uh, in January of this year, when they... Uh, opened the production of the Electric Lucifer. Mm -hmm. I went to it. You know, I just went to see how it was going, and uh, I, I was very impressed. the The actress, singer, dancer who played Lucifer was brilliant. Uh, she was excellent, and the production was okay. It, uh, he's somebody you may want to speak to. The uh, 
the fellow who directed it and uh, was the creative designer, and he worked with a producer named Joel Basson. Is this an off-Broadway uh, of thing? Collapsible Jewelry. Um, this is a... he, he might have some interesting things because oh. he, he fell in love with Bruce when he first heard Electric Lucifer. This but is a theatrical a production? production? Oh, it, this was a theatrical I, I production? I'm myself, I'm sorry. Oh. Is, this is a theatrical he, he, production he you're talking about? at the kitchen from a whole full week in January at the kitchen, which is a, a famous uh, off-Broadway uh, theatrical performance space, okay. art center, and all that. And uh, it played for about five or six nights. Cool. The place was packed. And I don't know where those people came from. I, I, and then I, I would speak they were to drawn them. In. The and they, were just, they just got wind of the fact that there was a stage production that would be running for a week of his Electric Lucifer. They probably were Electric Lucifer fans. But Amazing. You know, to be Electric Lucifer fan, you'd be a Bruce Hack fan. Exactly. <laughs> What Chris, is, saying, there, is there anything you can? Uh, we, uh, we got to kind of wrap it up now, at least oh, adjourn. I'm so sorry. Is there anything I'm, you wish? I'm you yammering away. <laughs> okay. I apologize for that. Is there anything you want to say, or I think that's something that you should mention before we go, and then we can play this one of these songs off the new, off the latest release, and uh, and say goodbye. Okay. Um, well, first of all, thank you, um, Johnny, and, and thank Matthew and They're all here. the people over at. Um, Starburns yes. Industries for making this possible too uh -huh. in your podcast. And um, to speak about Bruce is to speak about something really unique and special and someone who is really, really unique and special and really decent and good. And I thank you for that uh, privilege. Thank you so much, Chris. So for this long-winded period. No, it was wonderful. I, I learned so many things and uh, people are... Uh, I just think Bruce's music is just so important and it lives on because the stuff he's, he did is so uh, transcendent of time because it, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, that's how music is, I suppose, right? Thank you, Joe. Thanks, Chris. Thank you so much. Be in touch. Oh, God bless. All the best to you and all, and thank you very much. Take care. Bye now. Bye-bye. Yeah. Oh, good evening, Johnny. Uh, this is Chris. Uh, I just wanted to call you. Thank you, and also to say that I made a terrible mistake. Um, when we were talking, it was confusing, and then I started thinking about it, and I said, "No, I got that all wrong. I had it backwards." That album that Bruce did in 90, Christmas of '69. And um, and he finished in um, uh, New Year's of um, 1970, those uh, 10, 11 days that we worked on it, was supposed to be the third volume. He wanted to do the last part of the triptych. So that wasn't the original book, too. I, I was I couldn't imagine that I was got caught up and had a, I got longer and longer. It, he did book two when he did book two, which was strange. He did book two long after he did the third part, which was that period of time just before Electric Lucifer original 
first volume was supposed to be uh, released, and he was happy that that was happening. He wanted to do the last part. I'm saying, what what am I? What did what did I say wrong? What? And then it all fell into place. I said, he um, that album that he did right after the original Electric Lucifer is actually the third part. That was actually the last part of the triptych that he wanted of the uh, the Lucifer cycle, which was the return of Jesus uh, Christ at. Um, and it would be the last album of those three. So book three is what he did right after he got the news they were going to release uh, the first part. And they didn't know he wanted it as a triptych, but this is what his thought was. So he said he wanted to like celebrate at that Christmas, New Year's time between 1969 and uh, when 1970 first hit. So he said, I wanted to do the last part. So that week of uh, uh, 10, 11, 11 days or 12 days was uh, recording that part, that third part, which is Electric Lucifer Book 3, IFO, uh, Identified Flying Object, which is uh, the return of uh, Jesus. So I don't know how that could be corrected or um, whatever you want to do. I mean, it's nothing, not such a great problem. It's just that I got it confused. And what he did in 74 was, in fact, and indeed, the second part. But the thing is, he would use some of the songs or rewrote or reworked some of the songs he used in the third part that he used on the, uh, on the second one, which he did um, in order of uh, that. But the thing is, it was out of order because he... Uh, Actually, did the third and last part right after he did, right after the first part was about to be released, and the second part was done in 1974 or thereabouts. I, I you know, I, I think there's a chronology that you could find, but this third one was something he did right after the first one, and it was going to be the third part of the triptych. And the second, of course, was in 1974. I'm so sorry, Johnny. I got it all wrong because of my confusion. Don't get old. <laughs> um, try to stop it, right? But um, this is what happened in my head. I had it all, you know, because it was always a confusing issue telling people that he did the third part before he did the second part. And that's what the fact is. And I got it all wrong, and I'm so sorry. It's just that he used some of the uh, songs from the third part on the second part that he did uh, after he did the third part. Mm -hmm.